0: Good evening and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. We are here again with another hour of geeky stuff. And yes, we will be talking at length about Sandman. But first, 2022 continues to be an awful year for much beloved people to leave us. Now, again, it's not been that bad a year in terms of Losing people way before their time. What we're actually losing this year are people who have lived long and valuable and treasured lives. But still, it is always sad that people leave us. And this week, it has been reported that we have lost the great British cartoonist, Raymond Briggs. I'm aware that this is a very geeky show, and we do have sometimes a bit of a general audience, and I'm aware that sometimes I talk about people that, to me, are absolute rock stars, and to the regular person on the street, somebody they've never heard of. This, I am confident, is not true of Raymond Briggs, because everybody, and I mean everybody, who is British, who has grown up in this country in the last 40 years, or who has had kids in this country in the last 40 years, or who has been in this country at Christmas in the last 40 years, everybody that fits those descriptions has seen The Snowman. Everybody knows the iconic Walking in the Air song. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. That film has become part of British Christmas tradition. And if that's all Raymond Briggs had done, that in and of itself would be enough to make him national treasure. But in fact, he of course did so much more than that. Briggs was born in uh, in England in the 18th of January 1934, so he was a between-the-wars child. Uh, He's described as an illustrator, cartoonist, graphic novelist and author. I would just call him a graphic novelist and leave it at that. He's best known, as I say, for the snowman, but so much more. Uh, he won the Kate Greenaway medals from the British Library Association in both 1966 and 1973, which recognised excellence of his children's books. Uh, and for the 50th anniversary of the Kate Greenaway medal uh, in 2005, the panel named Briggs's book Father Christmas from 1973 as one of the top 10 children's books of the last 50 years. And You know, he's won a bunch of other Awards. Like most of you, I first discovered Briggs when I saw The Snowman on Channel 4. But about the 80s, which is when I was beginning to start to pay attention to graphic novels and graphic narrative in general, it was Briggs's work that woke me up to the idea that comics don't have to just deal with subject matter for children and certainly do not just have to deal with superheroes, which I'll be honest. As a young teenager in the mid 80s, I thought that's all there was. I thought there was 2000 AD and the, the, the science fiction element of that and American superhero comics. And I didn't know there was more than that until I discovered Raymond Briggs. Now, the big breakthrough for me came when I was 12. And there was some controversy about the publication of Briggs's book, The Little Tin Pot General and the Old Iron Woman, which was aimed at very young children. and was a- fighting and vicious satire of the Falklands conflict, which, you know, at that point was pretty recent history. Now, I've only read that book once. I've looked for a copy for years and cannot find one. It seems to be incredibly hard to get. My memory of it wasn't so much that it was overtly political, overtly party political, but that it was angry at the stupidity and the venality of Of people on both sides, and was very much about this is not the way to do things, this is not how we deal with this. That attitude featured very heavily in a better known work of his, uh, When the Wind Blows, which was also made into a film. Uh, It's significantly less feel good than The Snowman and Father Christmas, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Great David Bowie soundtrack, Uh, and that tells the story of two elderly people, two, two people who'd survived the Second World War and who therefore thought that they knew about getting bombed and all of that sort of thing. And follows this old couple as they prepare for a nuclear conflict and try to follow the advice in the government pamphlet, Protect and Survive, which was a real thing. You can look it up online and it's horrifying. <laughs> It's such a poignant book because these are two characters who trust their government and who believe what their government are telling them, and their government is saying a nuclear attack is survivable, and so they follow the advice and they get very frustrated with their son who is incredulous at what they're doing and is like the bomb rocks were all dead and no 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 we must do what and they follow the advice but they get it slightly wrong and. You know, there's, there's there's comedy in that. At no point is Briggs making fun of the characters. What he's pointing out is that the advice they're trying to follow is absurd. And through all of this, you have an increasing, impending sense of menace. As there are there are just individual pages in the comic where you have a very dark picture of a submarine spread across two pages, and just the caption: "Meanwhile, in a distant ocean." And then elsewhere in the book, there's uh, a, a picture of a, an intercontinental ballistic missile in a silo. And it says, meanwhile, in a distant field. And so you get the idea that these forces are being arrayed against ordinary people like this elderly couple. And that there's nothing they can do about it. The book's a hard read. The film is an incredibly hard watch. But of their time and timely. I was a kid. I was... A Uh, in my early teens, when When the Wind Blows came out. And I honestly believed that I stood a very good chance of being killed in a nuclear attack. Blows go some way to to capturing how it felt to be there and how useless the protections we had were. Because the truth is, there is no protection against that. And that was the point that Briggs was trying to make. On a lighter note, there's also Fungus the bogeyman, of course. And on a more serious but less terrifying note, There is also the biography that he did of his parents. It's called Ethel and Ernest, and it is a thing of utter beauty. It's not a saccharine, oh, my childhood was amazing and my mum and dad are brilliant kind of book. There's a fondness, there; You can see it, and it's nice to see that. And for me, that's what Raymond Briggs did so brilliantly. He never, ever pulled a punch. If there was a serious point to be made, if there was some darkness To be exposed and explored, he would explore it, but he did so in a way that felt fine. It was comfortable, and making you comfortable with darkness is perhaps one of the greatest things that a children's author can do for their audience. And he did it for his adult audience too. Oh, that's Raymond Briggs another giant that has left us but life as Briggs would have himself would have said moves on and so shall we to happier happier things I speak of course of the 10 episode first season of the Sandman because oh my word okay there are going to be spoilers I am going to sound the spoiler haul I'm not actually going to concentrate on the story. I'm going to concentrate on character, but obviously the story's going to come into it. So here we go. Spoiler horn, and then you've been warned. Arrgh! Spoilers. Arrgh! Spoilers. Right, so we have talked a lot about Sandman already on this show, and I make no apology for talking more. If you've heard me talk about this previously, you know what Sandman means to me for all kinds of reasons. Mostly, I know, to do with the time I discovered it, what was going on in my life when I discovered it, the people I discovered it and shared it with. All of that makes Sandman impossibly important to me. I was, in the early 90s when I first discovered Sandman, a very pretentious goth. If you've seen the show... Or read the comic, you will understand why Sandman appeals to a very pretentious teenage goth. For a few years there, in my late teens and early twenties, Sandman was absolutely the focus of pretty much my life. I had in was it 87, 88, picked up a copy of Sandman issue one in my local comic shop, and I had put it back down again, and bought a copy of Marvel Superheroes Summer Special. I've told that story before; it still keeps me up at night. But it was. Once I got to university in 1990 or 1991, that my best mate at university introduced me to the comics again. And frankly, she was incredulous that I hadn't been reading it already. And she was right. I should have been. Sorry, Andrea. You're always right if you're listening, which you're not. So it's important to me. And I've already said again on the show just how nervous. I was that this thing that I've wanted to see on the screen for more than 30 years was finally coming to the screen. Because what if they did a bad job? I was reassured, as I've already said again on the show, by early indications. That clip of death and the old violin player that did the rounds a couple of weeks ago. Lifted almost word for word, slightly toned down, actually, but lifted almost word for word from a scene in the comic. And I thought, okay, maybe we're okay here. I should trust Neil Gaiman. And I was right to do so. Because my spoiler-free review of Sandman, and you may want to just turn your device down a little bit, because excitement will follow in three, two, one. Oh my word! That is so good! So good! If you are going to do a comics adaptation, that is what you do. And breathe. Seriously. It's as close to perfect as a thing made by humans can be. It's that good. But let's let's dissect it a little bit. OK, we've got to start. If we're going to talk about characters, we've got to start with the central figure of the show. Lord Morpheus, Dream of the Endless, the Dream Lord, the Dream King, King of Dreams, The Sandman, played in the show by the actor Tom Sturridge, who is somebody whose work I am unfamiliar with. I watch quite a lot of TV, but nothing that's ever had him in it. So this is my first encounter with Sturridge as an actor. So I don't know if this is a typical performance or not. What I can tell you is that it is a great Performance of a character that is, I think, a little difficult. First of all, in the comics, Morpheus, and I'm I'm going to try and call him consistently Morpheus. He's got so many different names, but I'm going to try and be consistent here and refer to him always as Morpheus. Morpheus has a very distinctive look. If you think of the hair from a young Robert Smith from The Cure, you know, the sort of black, sticky-outiness of it. Put that on the body of Andrew Eldritch from the Sisters of Mercy. And you're pretty close. Very pale, very pale white skin. uh, Always wearing um, usually a black T-shirt type of thing with black trousers, black boots and a long black coat. Sometimes a black cloak because pretentious goth. And Sturridge nails that. He pulls it off. He looks like... The Sandman does in the comics. They've toned the hair down a bit for TV and they've done something clever with the skin tone. A lesser adaptation might, I think, have been tempted to use makeup to make Sturridge's skin pure white, because that's what it is in the comics. It's not what Westerners, white people would call flesh tone, uh, that sort of peachy, pinky, browny sort of colour. It's comic book page white. They don't do that. Okay, they could have, but it would have looked a bit like clown makeup and I don't think it would have worked. They've left his skin tone mostly alone. But there are scenes where the lighting, I think it must be the lighting, makes his skin seem pure white. And particularly that's in the scenes where he is imprisoned, which happens right at the start of the thing. The whole point, the whole trigger for the story is that. Uh, An occultist called Roderick Burgess, who is in no way based on Alistair Crowley. No, definitely not. Um, He is trying to imprison death and he fails and gets death little brother instead. And While Morpheus is locked up in this prison. For a century or so, his realm goes to rack and ruin and people sleep is unregulated some people fall asleep and can't wake up some people can't go to sleep it's it's kind of that sort of thing and in this prison his skin appears pure white that I think is also the episode that first episode that demonstrates to us what a good actor Sturridge is and what a performance this is because part of the story is that during his captivity Morpheus refuses to speak to his captors, he's trapped in this sort of glass ball and he refuses to speak to them. He looks at them. And so all Sturridge can do to convey the contempt and the hatred and the despair and the fear that he's feeling. Is use his face. No props, no words, just expression. And he absolutely flicking well nails it. It's such a good performance. So that's a good start. Really, really enjoyed Sturge's performance. Later on, as Morpheus is released from captivity and starts to rebuild his kingdom and interact with the creatures that he needs to control, he demonstrates a depth of emotional performance that is also particularly pleasing to this heart of this ageing pretentious goth. There's a scene in which he has to absorb a creature that he'd previously created because he needed the power back. And the friends of this creature are appalled and desperate and don't want this to happen. And Morpheus actually says, look, I'm not asking you, I'm asking him. And he doesn't come in as a tyrant and say, I made you, I now must unmake you because I need the power back. He asks permission. He explains why he needs to do this thing. And the creature understands. But you can see again, just in the expression of emotion that Sturridge manages to produce, you can see the pain that this causes Morpheus. And actually, that's a a side of Morpheus that even the comics don't show particularly well. So it's just beautifully done. So far, so good. Now, I did say there were some changes made, uh, particularly noticeable changes between the comic and the show. Now, those changes stand out most particularly in a few characters. So I'm going to focus on them for probably the rest of this. And we'll come back to the story and to the other characters maybe, maybe even next week. I'm recording this on the fly because inside baseball information, I actually recorded a 45 minute review of the whole series, which was going to be the the bulk of this episode. And then somehow I managed to delete it. So it's now Thursday, the 11th of August, and I don't have a lot of time. So I'm actually not sure how much of the show I'm going to get through now. But we are definitely going to concentrate for now on the characters who have been changed from the comics. And we'll start with the big one. We'll start with death. Now, I've already told you that when I discovered the Sandman properly and I discovered these characters properly, I was uh, a pretentious goth in my late teens and early 20s. I was 19 when I first met the endless death. And what can I tell you? She made quite a big impression on me. Death of the Endless, in the comics, is a very cute goth girl. Teat, uh, big black hair, uh, very slender, always in uh, a sort of black halternet top with black jeans and black boots and a silver ank around her neck. Uh, I still have a silver ank to this day, because of this. Yeah, look, I know. I've already admitted it. Pretentious goth, okay? Now, this visual was actually based on a real person, um, a woman called Cinnamon Hadley, who, back in the 80s, kind of a goth icon, uh, and also a dancer based in Salt Lake City in Utah. Um, Now, she was a friend of the artist um, Mike Dringenberg, who was one of the co-creators of the Sandman characters. It was Dringenberg who suggested to Gaiman that this would be a great look for Death of the Endless. Uh, Gaiman agreed, because Stringenberg was right. Uh, And I will just pause to note that um, Cinnamon Hadley sadly died uh, in 2018, I think it was. Uh, And, you know, it's nice, I think, that she has this legacy in the comics. It's not a legacy that is carried through into the show, because the actor that we have playing Death of the Endless In the show is uh, Kirby Howell-Baptiste who differs from Cinnamon Hadley in one very visually important respect. She's black. Now this was a huge problem to a huge number of people on the internet when this was announced and I will be honest it made me nervous for a second not because I think the ethnicity of uh, uh, an anthropomorphic personification actually matters. I don't. What I was concerned about was that, oh, if they are going to tamper with something as iconic as the look of that character, probably the most beloved character in the series, what else are they going to mess with? And are we just going to get a mishmash of stuff that's got nothing to do with the source material at all? And we'll come on to how faithful it's necessary to be to source material in a bit. I was reassured when I checked out some stuff that she had done, and Hal Baptiste actually, I already knew, great actor, brilliant in everything I'd seen her in, so, you know, I was confident if they'd offered the role to her and she'd accepted the role, it was only going to be because she could do the role. I, ladies and gentlemen, am very pleased to tell you I was right. She's flipping magnificent, and the only complaint I've got is that the character's only in the show for one episode. Which means if you look her up on the internet movie database, you've got to scroll nearly all the way down to the end of the cast to find her name. Which, honestly, given the importance of her to the story, is a shame. I understand why she is only in one episode, but as a character, Death of the Endless is so pivotal to Sandman. And that's the success of the original comics that oh, think she deserves a little bit more than that. But there you go. Them's the rules. That's how it worked. Why is she good? Well, in spite of the fact that she obviously has a dark skin tone, not the, again, comic book page white skin tone that Death of the Endless has in the comics. She captures the look without pastiching the look. She's got the big hair, the big black hair. Uh, Because, of course, she does. She's uh, a black British woman with natural African hair. So that works. Uh, In fact, I suspect that uh, the TV Death of the Endless uses an awful lot less product than the comic book Death of the Endless would have needed to. She also has the right physique and she looks good in the costume. So all of that works. All of that superficial nonsense, that works. What also works is that Hal Baptiste completely captures the spirit of Death of the Endless from the comics. What marks death out in the comics and why she became such a popular character is unlike the rest of her family. She is very grounded, very calm, very caring. Very compassionate. She is the most human of the endless. And also perhaps the only one that really likes people and understands the value of humanity. Hal Baptiste brings that through. Fighting also helps. There are several scenes in her episode, episode six, The Sound of Her Wings, which is also the name of Sandman issue eight, which was the, the comic that introduced death. Um, There are several scenes which are lifted straight from the comic page. The dialogue is perfect. Again, 10 out of 10. Absolute hit. I have no complaints about Death of the Endless, except there isn't enough of her. And so on we fly to other characters who were in the comics but have been changed. And the obvious one here to move on to is Lucian, the librarian of Green. In the comics! Lucian is a a sort of elf-like figure. I don't think it's ever explicitly stated that Lucian is an elf, but he's short-statured, he's very thin, he's very pale, and he's got pointy ears. He looks like an elf. And Lucian is not subservient, not servile, but he knows his place. And he values the protocols of, you know, how you address the Lord of Dreams. And, you know, know, stand with his hands behind his back. Very proper, very prim. And Lucian is a really good librarian. His job in the comics is to look after the Library of Dream, which is a library that contains every book that's ever been dreamt of and records of every dream that's ever been dreamt. It's a big library, is what I'm saying. And Lucian is also very loyal to Morpheus. So during the time of Morpheus's absence, It's Lucian who tries to keep the Kingdom of Dream, the Land of Nod, together. It's Lucian who is kind of the right-hand man to Morpheus when Morpheus returns and needs to rebuild his kingdom. Great character. Absolutely love Lucian. That character is not completely in the show. There is no character called Lucian, for a start. There is a character called Lucienne. And she is both female and black. So again, visually very different and gender swapped. There was some pushback to this as well, from all the places you would expect such pushback. At the same point in this regard as I did about death, which is not human and not real. So it doesn't matter. The ethnicity of neither of these characters is actually integral to the character. So Before anybody emails me and says, "Okay, then, well, why can't we have a white panther? Uh, The answer is, well, first of all, that's a dumb name. But also. You could. You really could. But they couldn't be T'Challa, King of Wakanda, because T'Challa, King of Wakanda, is the hereditary monarch of an isolationist African country that the whole point of the backstory of is that they never got colonised by white folk. So. Where exactly would the whiteness come from? It's just just simple, and and, you know, and the character was created to be a black character. It is integral to the fundamental makeup of T'Challa and the Black Panther that the Black Panther is black. Clues in the name, folks. Clues in the name. Death and Lucien or Lucienne are not that. They could have been played by people of any ethnicity, and indeed, perhaps we can imagine. As we think more deeply about what the story is trying to tell us, maybe they do appear as every ethnicity. Maybe when death goes to somebody in Vietnam, they look a little more Asian. Maybe when death appears to some macrobiotic life form in the clouds of Venus, they appear as a unicelled, ammonia-loving protozoa. I don't know. Could do. Does it matter? Do we care? As long as the performance is good? No. Well, I don't. And I don't think you should either. So the question is, is the actor playing Lucien good at portraying the character that was Lucien in the comics? And the answer I am pleased to tell you is, oh, heck yes. I'm going to be honest. The actor they have portraying Lucien is somebody I have not previously heard of. Uh, and I have never heard her name spoken out loud. So if I get it wrong, I apologize to all concerned. Uh, but Lucienne is played by Vivian Achiempong is what I'm going with. And she is spectacular. She has the mannerisms that we see in the comics down perfectly. She feels authentic. She feels real. Her, her primness comes through on the screen the way she interacts with other characters really comes through on the screen and you believe that she believes in Morpheus you believe that she will do anything to act in the best interests of the dreaming and you believe that although we don't see it you believe that that's what she's been doing all the time Lord Morpheus has been away it's a stunning performance and uh, oh, I, I cannot wait for season two because I want to see more. Huh? So good. Who else has changed? Well, the, perhaps the two other most controversial changes that were made uh, were the casting of Lucifer and the disreputable magic user that the Sandman needs to turn to at various points early on in the season. Lucifer, lord of hell is now Lady of because Lucifer is portrayed by Gwendolyn Christie, an actor who, I am pleased to say, I did know before the start of the show. Loved her as Brienne of Tarth in uh, Game of Thrones, which, you know, not a show that I actually enjoyed particularly. I've talked about this before. But I really liked her performance as Brienne, Brienne of Tarth because it was very faithful to the books, in the books, Brienne of Tarth has no interest in being feminine in any way at all. She had, you know, She's a woman. She's, she's very much a woman in a man's world, but she has no interest in being feminine. She has no interest in any of that. And there's none of that in Christie's performance. She's a very masculine character whilst remaining very definitely female, which is a hard thing to pull off. It's very easy to just act like a man. But it's difficult to act like a woman who has rejected her femininity. That's a harder thing to do. I saw something similar in the Star Wars sequel trilogy as uh, Captain Phasma, where, again, she is very much a woman in what has previously been an almost entirely all-male world. She's a woman with authority, and she's a woman who just gets on with the job. Which, when you think about it, is something that Lucifer would need to have done when Lucifer became Lord of Hell. Does the gender of Lucifer matter? Not to me. I'm sure there are theologians who have all kinds of reasons why Lucifer should in fact be male. And I'm just going to point out that Lucifer was an angel and angels are androgynous. So actually, the the gender identity of any angel, fallen or otherwise, is irrelevant because they don't have one. Therefore, when you're portraying such a creature, you can use persons of any gender you like. It's fine. The question is, does Gwendolyn Christie make a good Lucifer? The answer is, of course she does. She's Gwendolyn flipping Christie. What more do you want? She captures the arrogance and the casual cruelty of the character, whilst remaining just that little bit sympathetic. Like it. Like it very much. And now, if they're going to stick closely to the comics, and I believe they are, then we're going to see more of her in later seasons. So that's something very much to look forward to. A character I think we're probably not going to see any more of in The Sandman is the character I previously referred to as a disreputable magic user. And I did that because... In the comics that disreputable magic user is john constantine whose name they pronounce correctly in the sandman elsewhere it's been pronounced constantine and that is very wrong indeed constantine is from the north of england where we have tines not teens basically now constantine is a beloved character in the comics world as well he's been around a long time uh, he predates the sandman comics. Uh, He first appeared as a character in Swamp Thing, I think created by Alan Moore. I might be wrong about that. I'm misremembering it. And because of the aforementioned I deleted this whole section and I'm having to re-record it thing, I don't have time to go and look it up. So let's just say he was. Certainly, very first appearance was in Swamp Thing. Uh, He was intended to look like Sting. That's actually the note the artist got. Actually, was it Jamie Delano? It might have been Jamie Delano who actually created him. Not sure. You could go and look that up. Email me. Let me know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Anyway, at the beginning of the story, Morpheus needs the aid of a human magician. And he turns to John Constantine to perform certain tasks for him. Now, I don't know why they haven't used John Constantine for this. My speculation is that... They didn't want to have a recast John Constantine running around on the telly. There is already a TV version of John Constantine played by Matt Ryan, uh, which is very good. Uh, he briefly had his own show, which didn't even get to the end of its first season on Amazon Prime. I, I, it was on the AMC, I think, in America. It was surprisingly good, actually. He's also being portrayed in a major motion picture. By none other than Keanu Reeves in the movie Constantine, or Constantine, I think they pronounce it in the movie. Um, The Matt Ryan show, and Matt Ryan's subsequent appearances as the character in the show Legends of Tomorrow, surprisingly good. The Keanu Reeves movie, I want to say surprisingly bad, except I wasn't really surprised. And in fact, it's an okay, over-the-top horror movie if you... Forget it's got anything to do with the Hellblazer comics, which is where John Constantine hangs around. Um, so, but for whatever reason, I don't know why they. I, I think they, they might just have not wanted to recast the role. Whatever their reason, rather than having John Constantine fulfill the role of disreputable magic user, they have got Joanna Constantine. Now, Joanna Constantine exists in the comics as a wealthy noble lady from the, I think it's the 16th or possibly 17th century. That character also turns up. But in the present, we have a Joanna Constantine. Maybe it's a family name. That works for me. Who is a disreputable magic user played by the awesome Jenna Coleman. Now, first of all, full disclosure, I'm a huge admirer of Jenna Coleman. I loved her as Clara in Doctor Who, and I've loved it in everything I've seen her in since, so I'm biased. But I think I'm also right here. I think this character works. Is she the same as John Constantine? No, but she's not the same character. Does she fill the same role? Yes. Is she interesting in that role? Oh, heck yes. Also, she looks really good dressed as a priest. I don't know what to do with that information, but it remains true. What I'm saying... Is all of the changes that they have made work? There might not have been changes I would have thought to make, and I don't pretend to know the reasons behind all of those decisions. What I can say is that those decisions absolutely pay off. I am certainly looking forward and hoping to see more of all of those actors in all of those roles. As I say, we are likely to see more of Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer. I hope we'll see more of Hal Baptista's Death. Death doesn't actually turn up all that often in the Sandman comics. She's always spectacular when she does. But she is most notably absent from Dream's life. And she's not a big mover and shaker of plot in the Sandman story. There are, however... Stories which focus entirely on death. Uh, The two which most immediately spring to mind are Death, the High Cost of Living, and Death, the Time of Your Life. Two little mini-series which came out in the mid-90s and which were excellent, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Now, I would hope there's enough interest in Hal Baptiste as death from fans that we get a couple of seasons of death based on those books. That I would very much enjoy. There's also, from the early to mid-90s, a sort of public service announcement type mini-comic that was packaged with a lot of of DC Vertigo comics in which Death and John Constantine um, contribute to AIDS awareness and safe sex by um, showing you how to put a condom on a banana. It's hilarious. And the idea that Hal Baptiste and Coleman might recreate that scene as a PSA is something that I would pay very good money to see. And Netflix, if you're listening, I promise you, if I really thought that was on the cards, I would never ever cancel my Netflix subscription. Okay? You can you can take that one to the bank. You're a guaranteed customer. If I get that scene somewhere, because I think it would be hilarious. Anyway, I hope to see more of Hal Baptista's death through that route. And to be honest, again, John Constantine doesn't really turn up in Sandman again after this. But I would love a Joanna Constantine show. I really would. It it could properly work. She'd be amazing in it. So again, Netflix, if you're listening, sort it for me, would you? Thanks, awesome. Now, those are the characters that have changed. What about the characters that present in the show pretty much as they present in the comics? There are some awesome performances. Um, he's only in one episode, but Charles Dance as Roderick Burgess, the occultist, just wonderful. It's Charles Dance. I mean, he's he's obstinately Charles Dance. But at this point, I'll watch Charles Dance read the phone book. So, you know, it's fine. And then we have the voice of Patton Oswalt. And uh, Patton Oswalt is not that big over here, really, I don't think. Uh, I know him from being talked about on various US comedy podcasts uh, and from his podcast that he does with his wife. uh, Did you get my text? Where it's just him and his wife chatting about stuff and tremendously entertaining bloke. And he's got a he's a really good voice performer. He was also the voice of Happy in the Netflix series Happy, based on Grant Morrison's Happy. So I knew he was a good voice performer and he really nails Matthew the Raven. Now, again, pretentious goth speaking, uh, the idea that you might have your own pet raven that sits on your shoulder. It's a really nice idea. It really appeals to me. So the fact that that Dream has a raven is one of the things that attracted me to the character. Matthew the Raven is Lord Morpheus's emissary if you like uh, he can he can go where the dream Lord cannot and he can see things that the dream Lord will then also see but Matthew is also kind of sassy he's kind of a comedic character in the comics he he's often there with a bit of light relief and Oswald really nails that serious When he needs to be serious, funny when that's appropriate, but also demonstrating some real compassion for the characters he interacts with. There's sincerity in that voice performance when he says things like, I got you, kid, it's okay. And, you know, it's just a good performance. I'm not quite sure how they've done the bird itself. I, I sort of assumed CGI. But I'm not sure it's CGI. I mean, Corvids are, you know, incredibly intelligent. Uh, there are ravens who can, you know, be trained to do various things. Um, I wonder if what we've got with Matthew is a mix of CGI, real bird, and some practical effects. However they've done it, it's utterly convincing. I I, I believe in Matthew the Raven. It's It's a very solid performance both in terms of the vocal performance of Pat Oswalt, but also in the performance of whoever is making that bird do the things on screen that bird is doing, whether that's uh, a, a raven handler with a real raven or uh, a, a computer pro- programmer doing the CGI or puppeteers doing practical effects or any combination thereof. It looks like a real bird. It really is that simple. It looks like a real bird. If it wasn't for the fact that I know you couldn't actually get a raven to do that, I would believe they'd just got a raven and given it the script. This is becoming something of a loving. And just listening to me rave about how amazing something is for an hour might not be what you had in mind when you tuned into the show. So, do I have any negatives to say? Well, a couple. Only a couple, mind. But a couple. And the first is James' first raven, who is referred to as a raven in dialogue in episode one. We see Jacinda, death's first raven, or at least the raven that he had before Matthew. We see her flying about. We see Roderick Burgess trying to shoot her. We see Roderick Burgess's son achieving that. We see her trying to liberate the dream lord from his prison, this raven who is, as I say, referred to repeatedly in dialogue in episode one, referred to as a raven. And it's not a raven, it's a magpie. And that is so annoying and so unnecessary. I don't know quite why they've done what they've done. Personally, canonically, in the comics, Dream has always had a raven. Morpheus has always had a raven companion. only thing I can think of As to why they've made this change, which just really it wouldn't have annoyed me if they hadn't called her a raven in dialogue. If they'd referred to that bird, which actually Roderick Burgess always does, or the magpie, or something like that, it would have been different from the comics, and I wouldn't have cared. Matthew's status, Jacinda's status as ravens is unimportant. Any other kind of magic talking bird would do. But I can only imagine that in the script, because Dream always has a raven. In the script, they called the character a raven, and then the character was put into the thing in post-production, and somebody said, this is going to be confusing. All ravens look alike. People aren't going to understand that there is a proper distinction between this raven and Matthew, who is important later on. How do we make the ravens visually distinctive?" Well, make them a different kind of visually distinctive Corvid. Couldn't make it make them a crow because as he's done as a as a visual gag later in the in the season, um ravens and crows are also hard to tell apart. But if you make the character a magpie, then magpies look very different from ravens, and so that will work. And the only thing I can think is that they'd recorded the dialogue before they made that decision, and that the magpie was put in, in post production, and they decided That it wasn't worth redubbing the thing so that they could change the word raven to magpie. In the grand scheme of things, it is a small thing, but it is a small thing that really, really got on my nerves. On that, though, honestly, genuinely, it's all good. I don't have any other criticisms to make. There are some changes, ones where death asks Dream to accompany her on her rounds while she talks to him about what what a fool he's being and how self centered and annoying he's been. Um you know, she goes around collecting the souls of the dead, as is her job. And they're not all the same people as were a featured in the comic, and again it doesn't matter. It really doesn't The sequence where she comes for an old Jewish violin player. It's, it's actually been improved, I think, in the original comics version. It's raucous isn't quite the word, but the guy is playing and singing um, old Eastern European Jewish folk songs. And, you know, he talks to her about being able to pat a rummany and, and fake a bosh and, you know, explains what the Yiddish terms mean and, and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a jolly lively sort of character who then realizes that oh no this is it okay and then he says uh the appropriate jewish prayer and then goes with death in the tv adaptation the same basic thing but he's not playing folk songs he's playing Schubert and that adds an air of tranquility to the scene which emphasizes the peace that death is bringing to these people, and I think that's important in this context. That we need to understand as a viewer that death is not a thing to be feared. This death of the endless is somebody who, and I think I heard Neil Gaiman interviewed on the Mark Maron podcast, and you know he made this point: if you're if you're unlucky enough to step out in front of a bus you don't want then to meet a tall skeleton with a scythe wearing a dark black robe. You want someone who's going to smile at you and be kind and maybe just say, maybe you should have looked both ways, son, but who will be welcoming to you and reassure you. And that's what death of the endless does. And that's what this scene shows. There's also a, A scene which, again, directly lives from the comics where death goes to collect an infant. And we see the mother put the infant down in the car and leave the room. And then death picks up the child and says, yes, I'm afraid this is all you get. And it is a beautiful, quiet moment. Done better than it was done in the comics, because in the comics, you actually have the baby say what, is this all I get? And that, I understand why they did that in the comics. But had they done it that way in the show, again, you would not have got that sense of compassion from death that I think is important to the audience's understanding of the character. So all things considered, I very much approve of those changes. It's a stunning, stunning piece of work. And I've barely scratched the surface. I have been talking now for about 40 minutes about this show, and it's probably time I shut up and moved on to something else. But we will be back next week to talk a little bit more about Sandman. Just as my younger self was so very profoundly affected by the comics, I find that now my my older self is just as profoundly moved, although in different ways, by the show. And I need a week or two to unpack why that is and what it is about this show that's hit me so much more effectively than some of the other shows we've seen. I mean, I love the TV adaptation of The Boys, for instance, but I don't love it as much as I love this. I discussed last week, I love the TV adaptation of Paper Girls, but I don't love it as much as I love this. And it must be more than just my affinity with the comics. There must be something this show has done right. So. I want to get into that, and I want to get into some of the other performances. There are some great characters in this show. I haven't mentioned the Corinthian. I haven't mentioned the Collectors. I haven't mentioned Cain and Abel or Barbie and Ken or Rose Walker or Lita Hall or any of the characters who are going to be completely pivotal to the rest of the narrative. So we'll be back, but for now, we'll call that done. Okay, so I didn't mean to talk for quite so long, unbroken, about the same thing. Sorry. Not sorry about the jingle. That was always going to happen. Because, no, 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 no. I was about to go into raptures about how amazing the soundtrack's been. I'll leave that for next week, I promise. No more Sandman tonight. Instead, we'll move on. I'm just looking at the clock, and I'm realising that I am not going to have chance to go into any kind of depth about the wonderful woman of science I had intended to talk about. Indeed, I'm just looking at uh, I've got three pre-recorded wonderful women of science uh, and they're all longer than I've got time to put in here. So rather than edit stuff down and not do these people justice, uh, I'm going to skip the wonderful woman of science just for this week. Um, maybe I'll do two in the future week just to make up for it, because there are still a lot of wonderful women of science to talk about. I am just going to very briefly uh, and again, partly because of a conversation I had in the shop this week. uh, I am going to just very briefly remind you why we're doing this. We're doing this because the head teacher of a school and a government advisor. Actually went on record to say that. Most girls don't like science. And as a head teacher, she didn't feel it was a good idea for her to make them do it. Now, I agree with the last bit. If somebody isn't interested, genuinely isn't interested in science, whether they're male or female or any other gender you care to name, you shouldn't force people to do that. A a grounding, a basic understanding of science is important if you're going to live in the world. So everybody should do basic science. If people don't have at least some understanding of it, you end up with people who don't believe in vaccines and think that bill gates wants to microchip you and it's important that everybody has enough of a knowledge of science to know that both of those conspiracy theories are utter nonsense but beyond that you know do you need to know in depth no i didn't study science in depth i'm a boy and i didn't and i didn't because i didn't care about it enough i really liked physics But I wasn't good enough at the maths to really get into the nuts and bolts of it. And so I found it incomprehensible and therefore quite off-putting until I was much older. Had I been forced to do physics beyond GCSE, I don't think I would have gone on to build rockets and do the other sciencey stuff that I've done. Loved chemistry because you can make stuff go boom. Um, Hated biology. Hated it. Too squeamish. Should I been made to do it beyond basic grounding? No. But there was an undertone in the comments of that head teacher whose name I shall not utter and whose school I will not publicise because I think she's a terrible teacher and it's a terrible school for the record. I got from her a sense that it wasn't students who don't want to do something, shouldn't be made to do it. It was very definitely girls. And that's wrong on so many levels, just as boys should be encouraged to do cooking and sewing and stuff. I'm trying to think of like female centric subjects. Childcare. Yeah, Boys should be encouraged to do that if they have the slightest affinity for it, the slightest interest. That should be encouraged. Girls should be encouraged to do so-called masculine subjects. If they have the slightest affinity, the slightest interest, that should be nurtured. And that's not making them do things. It's nurturing something. And that is the job of an educator. And any educator at whatever level, but certainly by the time they get to head teacher status, should not be talking the way that head teacher was talking. And that's what the wonderful women of science is about. Reminding you that women do science and they do it brilliantly and they should if they want to be encouraged to do so and not be faced with suggestions that there's something weird about that because there is not so that's that ah you knew I was going to get the boring preachy bit in didn't you okay moving on from that I don't have the dates of the forthcoming geek pub quizzes in front of me suffice to say they're happening. Links to the Geek Pub Quiz uh, Facebook page are in the show notes. So do please feel free to um, go and follow that. Uh, I can only say that the various pub quizzes, the kids quiz, the movie quiz and the original and best geek pub quiz are all amazing. And you should probably go to them. It's a great night out. Elsewhere on the Geek Community Notice Board. I'm finally plugging myself. I know. I never do this. But uh, with a big shout out to North Yorkshire Libraries and specifically Harrogate Library. That's the Carnegie Library on Victoria Avenue. I recently put my educator hat back on properly and got myself out into the world and ran a comics creating workshop at the Harrogate Library for... Seven to 11 year olds. And it was an absolute blast. It was also oversubscribed. And so there were lots of people who wanted to go who couldn't. As a result of that, and because I kind of enjoyed it really rather a lot, I agreed to do it again. So there is a comics creating workshop at Harrogate Library on Monday, the 23rd of August. Uh, between 10.30 and 12 o'clock. You do need to book, and there is a charge levied by the library service. I do not see any of this money. Don't want any of it. I'm happy to do it. Um, It's not an extortionate charge. It's £2 per child. For that, they get my undivided attention for an hour and a half, and all the materials they could possibly need. Places are limited. And as I record, I think there are only three places left, but I would love a full house. Don't contact me about that. Get in touch with the Harrogate Library, uh, the children's library specifically, and they will set you straight. If you think that sounds awesome, but you either can't get a place on that or you and you have a child who you think would enjoy making comics and learning how to create characters and do all that kind of thing. I'm available for schools and I'm available for youth groups. I try not to charge for that. If certainly the, fir- the first visit to any school is always free. After that, maybe we need to talk about it a little bit because my time is valuable. But I try not to charge because I do this for the love of doing it. OK, it's one of the reasons that. keep Anyway, I'm sounding pious now. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk uh, or go to the education section of my website, uh, destinationvenus.co.uk for more information. Or just drop into the shop and ask me. That also works. Anyway, that, folks, is our time. No time even for the closing sting. We'll see you next week. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Above all else, stay geeky.